Hi, I'm Paul Havershoud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. For over two decades, David Milgard and his mother worked to prove his innocence while he was behind bars. Guy Paul Moran never doubted that this moment would come, the unambiguous acknowledgement of his innocence. We all know our justice system is far from perfect. Marshal Milgard Moran, these names now represent painful reminders of the fallibility of the police and lawyers, judges and juries. But these miscarriages of justice are supposed to be anomalies. The system overall is supposed to be working. You present evidence and you present proof and you speak the truth and justice will happen. But step into our courtrooms and a very different picture begins to take shape. That was back then. This episode is about two very different sides of our justice system. The problem, of course, is that it costs money. How how fair can something be where you can sidestep accountability by simply buying your way out? Why should you be dragged through court for two years because you don't have housing? It's a very simple question. Justice? Basically, after three years of not being able to see my children, they said, okay, you're free. Well, that's not justice. From Ideas contributor Mitchell Stewart, this is part one of a two-part documentary series we're calling Injustice for All. We don't try to achieve justice. We try to achieve finality. I'm not going to call it a system that produces just outcomes. That's not been my experience. I might just move your mic a little tiny bit closer to you here. Talking about the legal system is tricky, partly because there isn't really just one legal system. Television likes to talk about the big, exciting criminal cases because there's lots of drama involved there. But the reality is most people are never in a criminal court in their entire lives. Like, uh, you know, a very small percentage of people ever have run-ins with the law. But they do have run-ins with the legal system. Most people that I speak to tend to zone out because they think this isn't about me. I will never be improperly treated by my employer. I will never have a landlord who tries to illegally evict me. You'd be amazed at how many people think that it's never them. But the reality is is that it is most of us or people that we are connected to at some point. But people don't think that until it happens to them. In an average three-year period, about a third of Canadians will encounter a legal problem of one kind or another. And when it happens to them, then they come pounding on, I've dealt with this, they come pounding on the door of a legal clinic and say, you have to help me, you have to help me, you have to help me. And when I say to them, well, we don't have the resources to do it, they, 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 they go ballistic. My name is Lenny Abramowitz. I'm the executive director of the Association of Community Legal Clinics of Ontario. 
I talked to Lenny Abramowitz at his home in Toronto. We have specifically professionalized the, the law in a way to make it so that only the elite, only the, one, the ones with the magic code, the magic words, who've gone to law school, have the degree on their wall, can navigate that environment. To go into court and to make an argument, particularly when the other side has an experienced lawyer, ain't going to work. You need somebody on your side who can make those arguments because the law is tricky. That's why you need people who are trained that area who can then speak on your behalf and make sure that in the halls of justice, your case is put forward. Because in the absence of that, you're doing it on your own, and good luck to you. On its face, the problem is simple. Most people can't afford a lawyer, especially in family court. And while there are legal aid programs for those who can't afford counsel, very few people qualify. It's really only there for the poorest of the poor. Which means that in some jurisdictions, as many as 80% of people in family court are now represented by themselves. It would be akin to somebody saying, oh, you need your appendix taken out. Well, you know, we've got an operating room open for you there. You go in, give yourself anesthesia and perform uh, the operation on yourself and let us know how it turns out. Well, in some ways, that's a little bit of what it's like for people to represent themselves. Do you want me to, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not just a self-represented litigant. I'm actually a district elementary counselor in a school district in Vancouver. This is Jennifer. We're using only her first name to protect her privacy. I was at home on a summer afternoon and someone was at my door and I went to answer the door and I was handed papers by a stranger and they just walked away. I, I didn't even process or understand what could be going on. And when I opened the documents, I, I, I was terrified. It was July 2008. I was unexpectedly served by my daughter's father for immediate 50% custody following the termination of our relationship. And I had been solely responsible up until that point for her care. She had, she had never resided at his home. She certainly knew him, but he had not been involved in her day-to-day -day care. It seemed like a very drastic step to take. And it wasn't that I disagreed with the 50% in the you know big picture. It was just the manner in which it was being gone about so abruptly. My heart was racing. I remember within hours making calls to to lawyers, I knew that I, I was in over my head and I, I couldn't manage alone. So at the time, it, it was $350 an hour, which seemed to be a, a lot of money. Um, I didn't know how exactly I was going to pay for it. And I was very upfront right at the get-go about my financial situation, that I, I didn't have tons of disposable income. Within six weeks of me signing the retainer agreement, I received my first invoice from the lawyer and it was just over $20,000. It was $20,186.46, I believe. At first, I just thought there's got to be an error. This is not possible. And then there were pages and pages of itemized, like accounting for every single minute. I couldn't fathom that that was possible to ring up that kind of a bill for a matter that did not seem that complex to me. You may think you have to be litigious to get this tangled up in the legal system, 
But the reality is anybody can be sued for custody. I was just scared, like scared beyond belief. How would I possibly afford all of this? This is just, it was an impossibility. I'd cashed in every RSP and I even was selling my jewelry. So it was a very desperate time financially. What made you decide that those were the lengths you had to go to? The only other option was just to immediately give up. And, and that didn't seem right. I, she was a baby and I felt deeply about what was best for her and her needs at the time. And that is what drove those decisions. It wasn't that I wanted to be in that matter. I wanted the opposite, anything to make it stop. Over the course of three months, Jennifer spent more than $50,000 on legal fees. So I hired the lawyer July 3rd, and by October, I knew I couldn't afford it anymore. My knees were shaking and my heart was pounding almost out of my chest, and I apologized to the judge for being there without a lawyer and explained that it was because I could no longer afford the lawyer. And I somehow got through that hearing, and there would be six more of those hearings. Jennifer would stand before eight different judges over the course of those hearings. And then there was a nine-day trial in family court. The real problem was what was I going to do about the trial that was looming for the following summer? Because in my mind, there was no way that I could represent myself at a nine-day trial in the Supreme Court. And the other side had had more than just one lawyer, so money was not an object for him. The problem that we have had in Canada now for at least 10 or 15 years, but is getting increasingly worse, is that very few individuals can afford to pay for legal services in anything other than a somewhat minimal or initial form, which means that many, many people wind up representing themselves and still often facing legal counsel on the other side, which makes for a fundamentally unequal negotiation. Julie McFarlane is a retired distinguished professor of law at the University of Windsor and the founder of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. I think that it's very bad. Uh, I think that partly we have let this uh, happen almost unawares that it was happening. There has been very little attention paid to how many people can no longer afford legal counsel to represent them. Almost half of Canadians encounter a significant civil or family law issue over the course of their lifetimes. So you'd think we'd be paying a lot more attention to this. I realized somewhat in shock about 12 years ago now, that the proportion of people coming to court without counsel had exponentially risen and that we seem to be sort of sleepwalking through this. I think, unfortunately, it speaks to the insularity and the elitism of the legal profession. We do tend to not see ordinary people as stakeholders in the legal system, which is pretty astonishing, quite honestly, in the 21st century. As more and more people fall through the cracks, not cracks, cracks is the wrong way to describe it, fall through the chasms of lack of access to justice, people will raise these concerns. Lawyer Lenny Abramowitz. And when somebody has this happen to them or somebody close to them, 
their eyes are opened and they realize this is crazy. This is not a healthy way to run a society. And so if you remove the possibility of expert agents for a significant number of people, which in family court in some places is now up to 80%, the system is now working in a way that was never anticipated. Jennifer was one of that 80%. I remember walking up the steps of the courthouse and having this surreal feeling come over me, like, how was this even possible? How could I even be permitted to go into the Supreme Court of British Columbia, unaccompanied by a lawyer, completely alone, and that I would sit there on the other side of the courtroom from a team of legal professionals? The inequality of it and the injustice of it, it's never left me. When you're in court, you have to advance your argument in very specific ways. That's why you spent three years in law school. I had accrued some case law that was quite important, but I hadn't understood how to present it properly and weave it into the context of the case. And I ended up at the last day just giving it to the court clerk to give to the judge. And and that just felt so awful, like as it. It just vanished out of my hands and knowing that I hadn't spoken about it properly. Yeah, it was a very upsetting endeavor, the whole thing. It was traumatic, actually. It was it felt traumatic. I I remember it very clearly. I remember looking down at the table in the courtroom. I remember just the reality of it setting in. After a nine-day trial, the judge made his decision. It it didn't surprise me just because I was so acutely aware of how poorly I felt I'd done through the trial. The judge ordered 50-50 custody. Jennifer says her daughter was devastated. There were years of, of her off and on crying the night before. She would go to her dad's saying, I I don't want to say goodbye, was her refrain for years through tears. And I became quite hardened against it. I just, I couldn't change it. I couldn't do anything about it. I made the decision when I went through what I did that I'd never go back to court. I would not go back to court. I couldn't go back. As the years went on, Jennifer's daughter continued to struggle. And when she was 12, she became very, very, very anxious. Things came to a head in September 2018, 10 years after the initial custody hearing. My daughter was so upset and unglued about having to continue with the parenting schedule as it was, and she was going to have to go with her dad, and she didn't want to, and she was sobbing and crying, and I just couldn't cope with it. It was so heartbreaking. I just didn't know what to do, aside from then realize I'm going to have to go back to court. But Jennifer didn't want a repeat of the first trial. She knew she would need a lawyer. And I was actually surprised. I was granted a very, very, very large uh, loan for $50,000. And I was able to hire a lawyer. So Jennifer found herself back in court, but this time with representation. It changed everything. It felt so reassuring and awesome to have somebody that could articulate and express all the things that were going on in 
in my daughter's life and explain to the court what she was going through and what she was feeling and even to advocate for my position it was just a wonderful feeling to have somebody be able to speak on my behalf i couldn't have done that on my own jennifer would ultimately win her case but there was a price the relationship between her daughter and the father my daughter has so much resentment towards him for all those years where she felt she was quote unquote made to go and i think that our situation and the outcome and the destruction really of their relationship is a product of the formal court system do you feel like you got justice i do in the sense that my daughter voice was finally heard but the process was so harmful to her and to myself and to her relationship with her father that justice was not served in that way and it cost just under $100,000 i'm still paying that off i will pay that off for the next 20 years so in that sense no justice was not served What Jennifer experienced occurs on a daily basis in family courts across the country. And after I spoke with her, it struck me, maybe naively, that the solution seems sort of obvious. Why not just give everyone a lawyer? The number of people now who would require some kind of public subsidy in order to afford to pay for legal services would make the cost of legal services more than the combined totals of education and health. I mean, it's not doable. But some argue that investing in legal aid actually saves money in the long run. Research from the Canadian Forum on Civil Justice shows that for every dollar the government spends on legal aid, it ends up saving between nine and sixteen dollars in other places. It's not rocket science to figure this out. Someone who's facing eviction, if you can give them a lawyer that allows them to either stop the eviction or negotiate something, so they don't end up being thrown on the street and are actually able to transition to uh, to, to, to something else. These are all actually savings. Lawyer Lenny Abramowitz. The cost that there is to society when someone is homeless, in terms of health care, in terms of mental health services, it is not easy to be homeless and to be on the street. Of course, these types of savings wouldn't be immediately apparent, and the upfront costs would be huge. But in certain contexts, like family court, maybe the focus on funding legal aid misses the point entirely. We're doing this wrong. we're not serving children and families and if it's true that almost half of all unions partnerships or marriages end in separation and many of those if not the majority have children in the mix we need to do this differently we need to do this better Jennifer now does legal advocacy work and is pushing for things like mandatory mediation to try and resolve conflicts like hers before they end up in court there's just too much at stake there's the wellness of children and families emotionally and financially there's absolute devastation that happens when they're funneled through the formal justice system it's not a place to manage these things the thing is mediation doesn't always work in fact it didn't for jennifer the mediator came in and just threw up his hands and said this is just not working the other side just has one position and they're not willing to shift But there's something deeper going on here. All this conflict, all this fighting, it's not a bug in the system. It is the system. 
we have what's called the adversarial system. That is, you have two opposing perspectives. You hire trained professionals to go into the court and they butt heads and the judge sits back. There's a neutral, impartial third party and they don't actually need to know anything about anything because they listen to these two experts fight it out in front of them and then the judge or jury say, yeah, you were right or you were right. That's the system that we work under. It doesn't have to be like that. So in France, they have what's called more of an inquisitorial system. And in an inquisitorial system, the judge actually plays an active role in trying to get at the truth. They don't sit back passively and wait for the lawyers to bring the truth out. They actually ask the questions. They actually have a role, an investigative role, an inquisitorial role in trying to find out what the truth is so they can then make a ruling on the basis of that. Now, you can imagine who loses out in that type of model, and that's lawyers. Because in an inquisitorial system where there's a trained professional who is getting at the truth, you don't actually necessarily need a lawyer. The inquisitorial system is intriguing. Maybe taking lawyers out of the equation would be one way to level the playing field. Instead of hiring the best lawyer you can find, you'd put yourself entirely in the judge's hands. But a system like that would require a lot of trust in the state. And sometimes people have good reason not to trust the state. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast, which you can find on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. There's a publication ban on the case, so, so we can't identify him. I see. But you can talk about it. Yes, we, we, we can talk about it. As a... I spoke with Ken and Laura at their home in Kitchener, Ontario. Because of the publication ban, we're not using their real names. So, so did we don't identify the house or the family or something like that? Contributor Mitchell Stewart brings us this two-part series called Injustice for All. This first part focuses on the systemic problems within our family court system. We are from the Czech Republic. Uh, we came in 2015. So it's been a while. Yeah. We didn't quite <laughs> come to stay, but we kind of <laughs> it evolved over time. Um, a few years after they got to Canada, Laura gave birth to twins. Yeah, they were premature. Um, five weeks early. I wasn't ready. They weren't ready. Uh, just twins are often early, often yeah, premature, but but not five not, weeks. Not five this weeks. Was, yeah. yeah, this was life or death situation. The twins are six now, a boy and a girl. She's a little firecracker. <laughs> uh, she's a, a really fun kid. Um, our son, um, it's a bit hard to tell because he's kind of a, you know. Um, he has 
pretty serious brain damage. Well, I was at home holding my son in my arms. He was, what, two months old, basically. After uh, a normal day with no issues, uh, I have to yeah. say, this was in the evening. And, well, he suddenly stopped breathing and went limp. Yeah, well, trip to the ER, um, you know, uh, and that's where things started to, to go pretty, pretty wrong. It turned out their son had a blood disorder, which had caused him to have several strokes. The doctors in the ER decided to do an x-ray too, and it showed tiny fractures on their son's ribcage. Basically, we were asked whether we have an explanation. And when we didn't, they assumed we were covering up yeah. something. They were lying. So uh, we got a phone call from social services telling us that they are apprehending our children. And, uh, you know, at that time, I didn't even know what the word <laughs> apprehend means. It was just a eight-week-old baby at that time. I was nursing both of them and... Suddenly, I had no access to my children, you know. Laura and Ken also have an older son. The Children's Aid Society would apprehend him and their other twin as well. A stranger turned up at the door. She said, yeah, well, I'm from social services. Uh, we don't know what happened. We'll be apprehending your children. Basically, I had to wake up the kids, the other two that were at home, pack some basic necessities for the night, you know, give that... CAS woman some child seats and, and just wave them goodbye. Then they have five days to show up in court and legalize it, finalize it. You know, So by that time you have five days to get a lawyer, you know, to find a good lawyer, to get a lawyer who's available in five days to fight for you and get, get there, right? We've never been in a situation like this before. We have absolutely zero criminal history, you know, or any other like involvement with the police or anything like that. So I was absolutely clueless as to how, how you even go about this. I've never heard a story of this sort. After their infant daughter was apprehended, she was x-rayed too. The doctors found the same fractures they'd found on her twin brother. Their claim was there's no other possible explanation for this issue other than somebody must have forcefully... I don't know, squeeze them or something. But Ken and Laura say there was another explanation. They both had uh, something called a metabolic bone disease of infancy, infantile rickets. But at that first hearing, Ken and Laura didn't yet know about metabolic bone disease. And they didn't have the time or the know-how to hire a child protection lawyer. In fact, the lawyer they did hire never even showed up. If I had a good lawyer familiar with these types of situations... I'm quite sure that the result would be very different. All three children were taken out of their home. For six months, from a loving family, with no issues, no concerning behavior, no history of any criminal behavior, no nothing. Just a normal family with a, with a sick child. Not an abused child, a sick child. Laura and Ken were allowed to visit their kids, but only under supervision. How do you feel if you are not in the position to nurse your kid alone? You cannot take your child for a walk in a stroller unless you have somebody walking with you. 
but we, you know, we made it work. So, uh, you know, at least I was there. Um, but then January came. Mid-January 2018, I was criminally charged. With no warning. Um, and was stripped of any contact with, with my children at all. No phone calls, no face-to-face -face meetings, like nothing. I couldn't write them a message. And at that time, we still like kind of naively thought that uh, this is a matter that will be resolved, if not within weeks, then within months. Because we were sure that there's something medically wrong that, you know, with them that caused this and we just need to find the reason why and then, then present it and it, it will be over. Um, yeah, so it ended up being quite different. The Children's Aid Society said the kids could come home, but only if Ken left. He wouldn't see his children again for three years. When my daughter said her first words, you know, when she started walking, I wasn't there, couldn't, couldn't see that, couldn't help with that. Basically, I was stripped of, of the first three years of, of, of their life. Um, <laughs> I don't really have words to, to describe that. With my older son, he was four-year-olds when, when I was stripped all the excess, and I suddenly couldn't even call him and and, and say hi. I, I like you. I, I couldn't couldn't send a, you know, happy birthday. Those types of cases I have seen, um, they are very complicated and our system doesn't do very well with them. My name is uh, Tammy Law and I practice in child welfare and family law. A lot of times the Children's Aid Society, as with any other party, they're just providing their version of the facts, right? But there's explanations that can be had. So it's a huge hill to climb because it's, there's automatically this taint of suspicion on your parenting. So, you know, some doctor who's done like years of medical school said you're a bad parent and, and you say, I'm not, <laughs> what's your defense? Um, I guess you have to find another expert that with many years of medical education to say, no, actually that person is wrong. Right. But that takes time. So meanwhile, you're stuck. There were no eyewitnesses. So it was just my word. There was nobody to say otherwise. Cases like this are really expert witness battles. It was persecution experts, doctors, saying this and that results in child abuse. Against our experts saying this and that has those explanations. Ken had to find all his own experts and pay for their services. Just for the witnesses? I don't know. Seventy-five to hundred thousand dollars, maybe, and the total costs were astronomical. Quite certainly, more than three hundred thousand dollars, and probably towards four hundred thousand. And my lawyer, actually, my criminal lawyer, gave me huge discounts. Probably would have been another hundred, hundred and fifty thousand if 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 I didn't get that discount. We ended up having to sell our apartment to be able to cover everything, you know. Um, Ruin all the savings we ever had, borrow from the family. 
what other choice was there? Like, you decide not to go to trial? <laughs> you know, he would have been in prison now. The judge gave the verdict immediately. The last date of the court, I was pronounced not guilty. And I just jumped into the car and went to see my kids. The older one, he knew me, he remembered me, he, he was looking forward to seeing me. So uh, it was fantastic. With the other ones, they had absolutely no recollection of me. They, they never met me. You were cleared of wrongdoing criminally which was the desired outcome, but did that feel like justice to you? Justice? Basically, after three years of not being able to see my children, of ruining the family financially, they said, okay, you're free. Well, that's not justice. I mean, nobody's been held accountable for those three years. The, the ridiculous part is that... I had to spend, you know, a fortune on not going to jail instead of buying a car with a wheelchair access for my son. So um, none of this helped the quote-unquote victim in any way. Ken says that Children's Aid has never admitted wrongdoing in this case. Family and Children's Services of the Waterloo Region declined to comment, citing their confidentiality policy. I would say about 90% of my cases are, are parents that cannot afford a lawyer and need to depend on legal aid because they have no financial means. So child protection really is about poverty. It's the poor parents, immigrant parents, vulnerable parents, um, parents with mental illness or health issues. Those are the ones that are at risk of losing their children. If you have means, you're more able to ameliorate the protection concerns, right? So if the issue is, well, they think you've abused the child, well, you can say, well, I'll hire a nanny 24-7. If you were an abusive parent, do you think it would be possible to get your child back if you had the means? It's always possible. Yeah. Access to justice is such a broad issue. Like access to justice, there's the word access, and then there's the word justice. So you might have access to a lawyer, but, you know, even if you fix the access issue, you still have the justice issue. And those are like systemic problems, like they're societal problems. What would it take to create a child protection legal system that is just or significantly more just than it currently is? I really think the law, the legislation needs to be rewritten from the ground up because it's based on so many outdated concepts about family risk and it needs to be rewritten. I think that every time you have a piece of legislation that says we have to find the child in need of protection from their parents, you're already embarking on a route where you're blaming the parent for a social issue. So you're blaming the parent for being poor. When what you really need is piece of legislation that just recognizes that people struggle um, with these systemic issues and they need help. And it's not about um, wanting to take your kids away from you. 
How come this is so emotional for you? Uh, I don't know. It's a good. It's a good question. I think um, just over my career, I've just seen. I've just seen so many people be hurt by the system, and uh, the desperation that people feel to have their kids back is really hard. You know, if we just paid more attention and funneled more resources to people who needed it, so much of this could just go away, right? Like, why should you lose your children because you can't afford housing? Why should you be dragged through court for two years because you don't have housing? It's a very simple question. That shouldn't happen, right? So, yes, it's a law issue, but it's also a social issue, right? There's no justice in this without changing those basic fundamental issues for people, right? Like housing, like work, like income. You know, I think we'll just keep going on the way we've been going, which is just, you know, a society where there are certain people who just are more prone to losing their kids and those kids will grow up and the outcomes will be poorer for them. I mean, this is well known. Like, I mean, I have families who have been through child welfare for three generations. Why should there be a fourth? We met in 2010. Uh, we were dating and then um, had our daughter about in... Blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I'm, I hate going back to that time. This is Chloe. We've changed her name because her story includes sensitive information about her daughter. She's just like this little bubble of sunshine. She's awesome. She's articulate and she's so loving and just full of life. This isn't another child protection story, but it does start with the fact that as of April 2023, Chloe hasn't seen her daughter in 13 months. You know, she's surviving, you know, but this isn't a way of life and this isn't, you know, no parent would want to cause this kind of trauma to their child. Chloe dated her daughter's father for about a year back in 2010. Yeah, we split. I was pregnant. I remember that. And... It was end of 2011. At first, the split was amicable. Like co-parents who, who are just friends. Um, so we were very civil. We vacationed together. We would do weekend trips together. Almost like a, a family, but without that romantic relationship. The father was in their lives, but Chloe was the primary caregiver. My daughter has always, for nine and a half years, resided with me. There were speed bumps in the co-parenting. But overall, they made it work. That all changed in April 2018, after her daughter celebrated her sixth birthday at her father's house. And she came home and she was crying to me and she told me about something that happened at her father's home. Again, this is her version. I wasn't there, so I can't speak to it. But, um, you know, the family was all over. They had pizza. They had cake. Everybody had left, uh, including his girlfriend, and then he was on the phone with his girlfriend. And so then my daughter was trying to get his attention. And so, um, you know, with her little sassiness at that time, <laughs> told him, you know, get off the phone because she wanted that one-to-one -one time. And at that point, he had grabbed her arm and he pulled her and then flung her in the washroom, she stated. 
And so she bumped her head either on the counter or the ground, I'm not too sure. And then she said she was locked in. Children's aid was called at that time. I didn't know what to do, and a friend of mine just encouraged me, either you call or I call. Children's aid investigated the incident and said it was, quote, inconclusive. Regardless of whatever actually happened, it changed the relationship Chloe's daughter had with her father. I tried to talk to him about it. She tried to talk to him about it. And he just kept saying this is a made-up story. So it continued like that. And she was scared to be left alone with him. What made you so sure that an assault took place? I wasn't there. I can only speak to what she had told me. Um, To this day, from what I'm reading from the different reports, she's still sticking to her story. And then a few months later, Chloe was sued for custody. He wanted joint custody. And then in terms of access, he wanted every other weekend and then every Saturday. But Chloe's daughter was growing increasingly distant from her father. She didn't want to visit him. And when she did, it never lasted long. She would stand there for about 10 minutes. She wouldn't move. And about 10 to 15 minutes, I would get a call to come pick her up. They tried settlement conferences and reunification therapy, but nothing really worked. Then, in 2021, Chloe's ex-partner escalated. He wanted full custody. What accounted for that shift? Like, to my mind, that's a massive, massive difference of every other weekend or whatever. It's a huge difference. So what, do you know why that happened, how that happened? It came in with their claim of alienation, which started at about January 2021. Parental alienation is a complicated concept, but what it amounts to is this. It's a legal argument, not an accepted medical or psychiatric disorder. It's also deeply gendered. Around 70% of parental alienation claims are leveled at women. And when the courts agree that alienation has occurred, mothers tend to be punished more harshly than fathers. It's frequently invoked in cases involving family violence. One side, parent A, will make an allegation of abuse. Then parent B will claim that the allegation was manufactured as an attempt to alienate parent B from the child. This isn't to say alienation never happens, but it's deeply controversial in both legal and scientific communities. Did you ever try to influence the way your daughter felt about... Absolutely not. I've always wanted her to have her father in her life. The more people that are there to love her and support her, the better it would be. I spoke with nearly 40 people about their legal troubles while researching this documentary. And unlike many of those I contacted who didn't qualify for legal aid, Chloe did. My current income is like government assistance. But a few months before her trial, her lawyer dropped her case. She didn't like an email that I sent to a reunification therapist. So at a settlement conference in September 2021, Chloe asked the judge for more time to find representation. And at that point, he said, nope, this has gone on too far. We're going to be going to trial in November. She called every lawyer she could find. I had a list of 91 lawyers that I contacted and all wouldn't be able to take me. I mean... I remember one, but the retainer would have been something like 150000 They weren't going to take you on a legal aid certificate? No, absolutely not. I think I got laughed at more. <laughs> As the trial approached, Chloe offered a custody arrangement identical to the one her ex had proposed a few months earlier, but with a step-up approach, where they'd ease into the new arrangement over a period of four months. 
because we're going from ground zero. And then, you know, to get to sleepovers, like we, you know, let's work on the relationship. Let's slowly get there. And I don't think they like the timelines. The lawyers are obviously the only ones benefiting from this. And of course, for them, there's incentive to go to trial. There's incentive to to keep going to court and to keep filing motions and just to keep the case going because they make more money. On the first day of trial, Chloe made another request for an adjournment. She needed more time to find a lawyer. There were legal aid lawyers that would, you know, there was at least 10 to 15 of them said, if you can have the trial adjourned, I will represent you no problem. But the judge told her he couldn't or wouldn't wait any longer and that she'd have to represent herself. I don't want to be doing this. I'm not a lawyer and you're expecting me to be a lawyer, but I I don't have the background. I don't have any of that. Chloe's ex and his partner work for the Ontario government, which means their salaries are publicly available. Together, they make just under $220,000. That's more than 10 times what Chloe makes. So they were able to hire a seasoned family lawyer. The mismatch was obvious. It was horrific. It was just absolutely horrific. I hated doing this. I hated that we had gotten to this point because, again, starting off from being such, you know, amicable co-parents to this is just, it was insane to me. The way the trial unfolded wasn't surprising. I've read the transcripts. Chloe made several legal blunders. Her documents weren't formatted properly, and she tried making objections by claiming things were hearsay, but didn't fully understand what hearsay meant. But despite the legal mismatch, Chloe did have a few things going for her. For one, the Office of the Children's Lawyer, which represents the interests of the child in a legal dispute, had recommended that Chloe get full custody. I thought, okay, this is great. Trial's finally over. And so, um, you know, it was one beautiful week and we got to, I got to enjoy time with my daughter. And, and then on December 3rd, I, um, I remember us, we were coming home on the bus and I looked at my email. So it was just about a week after the end of trial. And I recall just scrolling down to where the decision was and seeing the final decision. And uh, I remember actually my legs gave out and um, I ended up um, falling um, just because of the decision. So that what the judge decided is that the father should have exclusive custody and all decision-making. And that my daughter, if I don't peacefully give her, that he would give an order for police enforcement. Do you remember how your daughter reacted when you had to tell her? I do. Um, She said that she would be traumatized for life. Chloe would be allowed three hours of supervised video calls a week. So the supervision was actually my ex supervising video calls. So he would set up this uh, laptop in my daughter's room. And then there there he was in the background supervising and telling us what we could talk about, what we can't talk about. A few months later, Chloe was granted an in-person visit with her daughter supervised by a third party. They went out for dinner at a restaurant. And then it came time to say goodbye. And um, 
she wouldn't let go of me. And then the police officers uh, came and then they spoke with her. They spoke with my ex. They spoke with me. And because of the concerning statement she was making to the officers, they said, okay, well, we're going to release her to her mother. And what was your daughter saying to the police? Um, she said she would um, rather die than go back with her father. And if they put her back, her, she would kill herself. Since Chloe lost custody at the end of 2021, her daughter has been hospitalized three times for suicidal ideation. Prior to her being removed from my care, she's never spoken of depression, of suicidal ideation, of any of that. I mean, you can imagine me reading that hospital report. I was in tears. I, I couldn't even read it myself. That's how bad it was. A few weeks after the restaurant incident, Chloe's daughter ran away from her father's home. I get awoken from a phone call. I pick it up. It's my daughter. She's run away from home. So my first instinct as a mother is just go to your child. So I just got in a car and just went. But by going to her daughter, Chloe had technically violated the judge's order. So they did another emergency order to get a restraining order against me, not with my ex, but my daughter. In March 2022, the judge granted the restraining order. Chloe hasn't seen her daughter since. You know, I've missed birthdays. I've missed Christmas. I've missed Mother's Day. Not even phone call, nothing. The only way Chloe is permitted to communicate with her daughter is by writing cards to her. But these have to go through her ex and a reunification therapist. And they're frequently sent back. Since our conversation, Chloe's legal troubles have only gotten worse. Despite the fact that she wasn't able to afford a lawyer, she's been ordered to pay a significant portion of her ex's legal fees. Currently, that number is slightly over $93,000. She's still on government assistance. But Chloe's story doesn't end there. She has a friend named Jennifer Kagan Vider. Jennifer's a doctor, and when she was in family court, she did have a lawyer. A good one. But the judge told Jennifer the fact that her ex was abusive wasn't relevant to their custody dispute, and he continued to give the father access. Good evening. Four-year-old Kira Kagan is being described as a spunky, resilient little girl. She died here yesterday while hiking with her father at Rattlesnake Point Conservation Area. Her family says Kira's death wasn't an accident. It turns out that Chloe had the same judge Jennifer Kagan Vider did. So do I think this judge is capable of making the best decision for the children? Absolutely not. I think after a four-year-old loses her life, I've lost any trust in, <laughs> in the system and in people's ability to make the best decision for the children. Jennifer Kagan Vider has become the center of a large network of women who have suffered under the justice system. Many of them were in abusive or coercive relationships and lost custody of their children after being accused of parental alienation. Most of them wouldn't talk to me on the record because of gag orders and publication bans. Some feared that their exes would retaliate, legally or otherwise. All of this goes back to what child protection lawyer Tammy Law said about access to justice. There's the word access, and then there's the word justice. So you might have access to a lawyer, but, you know, even if you fix the access issue, you still have the justice issue. 
And those are like systemic problems. There is clearly a need for education of members of the bench on issues that are critical to their decision making and which they are often poorly informed. Retired law professor Julie McFarlane. And to mention a few, that would include patterns of family violence, recognizing family violence, being aware of the traumatizing impact of family violence. In April 2023, Canada's Senate passed Kira's Law, a bill named after Jennifer Kagan Viator's daughter that aimed to educate judges about family violence. Chloe is still trying to get her daughter back. You know, we have work going back to the 1960s and 1970s, which shows how, how dramatically people believe in the legal system. In other words, there has always been this idea of the legitimacy of this process and its decisions. That's changing. The inequality of it and the injustice of it, it's never left me. I have absolutely no faith in the Canadian justice system. And I think that losing that faith in what is such a central institution of our society, you know, as central as the electoral system, is going to be very damaging for the future of civil society. When you don't have everyone having access to the judicial system, you lose that civilized society. And you may not lose it overnight, and you may not feel it today or even tomorrow, but in the long run, people will get angry, and people will opt out, and people will find other ways to give voice to their grievances. You can look down to our neighbors in the South and see what happens when people start believing the game is rigged. People start taking things into their own hands. And the solutions people will turn to at that point are not ones that I think are healthy. And at that point, it might be too late to put the genie back in the bottle. Ultimately, if we want a healthy and sane society, a civilized society where people all believe they have a place in it, then this is something that we need to do, and we need to do it quickly. You are listening to Injustice for All, the first of a two-part series by Ideas contributor Mitchell Stewart. Special thanks to Dana Cornwall at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.